to Revelation chapter number 7. Revelation chapter number 7. And we will dive right in tonight. Revelation 7. And for sake of review, I won't go long into review, but if you remember in chapter 6, you see the world is being torn apart. God's judgment is coming. And in chapter 5, we see that Jesus takes the title deed for earth and he begins opening the seals on that title deed. And the process of what's happening is, it's the redeeming, God is redeeming the planet, is what he's doing. It belongs to him, right? But today, Satan runs this world. He is the God of this world. So yes, God is over it, and God is over all things, but right now, Satan runs the world. That's the way it goes. He is the God of this world. And so what happened was God created everything. God gave man the world, right? And said, have dominion over it. Man sinned. Man gave the dominion and everything over it and said, here, Satan, it's yours. And someday God is going to redeem it. And he has the right to redeem it because of what he has done. We saw in chapter 6 and verse 1 there, we saw the noise of thunder reminding us of judgment coming. You hear thunder and things like that. And uh, did you see Florida's having a hurricane over there? That's what I expected here last week. Remember when they said, Hurricane Hillary's coming? And I'm like, Hillary, that scares me just in the name. I was scared of the name. I didn't know what was going to happen. But then, literally, it was just some rain. The wind didn't even blow. It was windier the other day than what it was when Hurricane Hillary passed through. But then you look at Florida, that's what I was expecting. I thought we were going to have to have boats to get down the street and trees knocked over and all those things. And I'm glad it didn't happen, but that's what I was expecting. Because that's what you see, things like that. But when you hear a storm coming, and when you hear thunder here in this passage, we realize that God's judgment is being unleashed on earth. We saw the six we saw the six seals opened up. We've seen the Antichrist. We've seen wars and famines and pestilence and all these things. We've seen those that um, we've seen the stars falling from heaven onto the earth. And men crying out to the hills and to the rocks to kill us. Even those on earth that rejected the Lord, they will still be rejecting him. You don't see them cry out to God for forgiveness. They're crying for the rocks and hills to fall on them. But in the midst of it all, while this is all going on, we look at chapter 7 and verse 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed an hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. 
Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. And of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Now it is interesting to know, and we'll look at this in a few minutes, you look throughout the Bible when the different tribes of Israel are mentioned, you don't hear the tribe of Joseph mentioned. Because you hear of Ephraim and Manasseh, not Joseph. But you see that Manasseh's mentioned, but Ephraim's not. Also, when it came to inheritance or portions of things, the Levites were always left out. But they're mentioned here, and there's one other tribe not mentioned. Anybody know what tribe that is? Dan is the other one not mentioned. So Dan and Ephraim are the two that are not mentioned. Say, well, why is that? I'm going to give you an opinion later on. I'm going to give you my opinion. That doesn't mean it is true. It's just an opinion. Now, you know, when it comes to the book of Revelation, tons of people have written a lot of books about it. Glenn, I only started the first few pages. I haven't gotten through that book yet, but I'm planning to by next week. And if I get it all figured out, that's all I'm going to read is that book to everyone, and I'm not going to even teach Revelation anymore if I understand it in one hour's time. But... You read a lot of books on Revelation like I have, there are a lot of opinions given and things that people think. Well, this 144,000 I mentioned a while back, Johnny got bit by that black widow spider. Everyone remember that? And he went to go see his girlfriend and he was going to go see her and then he got sick while he was there after getting bit by the black widow. And he called me to come pick him up and rescue him and bring him home. And so I got an Uber at 11 o'clock at night or 10, 10 o'clock at night, somewhere in there. And this guy lives right around the corner from me, and he had a Tesla that he drove me in, which was pretty cool to be in a Tesla at that time of night. But um, he's a Jehovah Witness. And so we were talking about these things. And he still has never come back to my house because I gave him some things to go ask his elder or whatever they called them there. And one of the questions, because we got talking about the 144,000. It used to be that they felt that they were that 144,000. The problem is throughout the years, there have been more than 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses, which, you know, that kind of doesn't add up. So you, only a certain amount of them and only certain Jehovah Witnesses actually make up the 144,000. And there's things you can do to be a part of that 144,000. And you will be able to rule planets, and there's lots of things that go into it. But if not... You literally will be, you're not going to be very special, but you still get to be in paradise, but not part of the 144,000 is their thoughts on that. There are a lot of people that have lots of thoughts on this 144,000. The question I asked him was, so then if, since you're a Jehovah Witness and you could possibly be part of this 144,000, my question is, which tribe of Israel are you from? I've asked many Jehovah Witnesses that question, and I can never get an answer because the Bible says it's different tribes of Israel here. 
And so we'll look at these. You know, there's even been TV shows about the 144,000. They had a whole show not too long ago. I never watched it. So I don't know if it had anything to do with this or what it had to do with. I doubt it had anything to do with this because these 144,000 do something very special that we'll look at tonight. As we look at this passage tonight, there are many things I want to get into. And we're going to look at these and hopefully get some thoughts from here. Number one, as we dive in, we see in the midst of all the chaos on earth, there's a moment of peace that takes place. And once again, we see that this literally is God's grace and mercy even in the midst of the tribulation. You know, isn't God gracious enough as it is? Isn't he merciful enough and long-suffering as it is? And finally, when he's releasing his judgment on the earth, he even stops again because he's so gracious and so merciful. Let's read verse 1 through 3 again. It says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, as we look at these things, we look a little closer, and we see this moment of peace. Well, letter A, the fact is, what is the reason? What's the reason for this peace? Why is there peace? God literally takes a moment break. God's wrath is raining down upon the earth, and he pauses to answer a prayer that comes from the book of Habakkuk. Now, it's interesting. This is funny. In your notes there, you have Hebrews 3.2. Hebrews 3.2 is not going to help you here. I was preparing this late Monday night, and as I was preparing this, I um, was using my Bible program, looking up these verses, and Habakkuk, H-A-B. And I'm thinking to myself late at night, I cannot spell this tonight, so I'm just going to leave it H-A-B with a period, and Caitlin will figure that out. She must have thought I meant H-E-B, Hebrews. Because normally I try for Mona or for Caitlin, I type out the whole thing, but I wasn't thinking of how to spell Habakkuk. Like, why didn't you look it up? It was late at night. I didn't think to look it up. And so, take your Bibles with me to Habakkuk. Can you find that tonight? We could have a Bible drill, sword drill. Habakkuk. I like doing those with the kids at, in the Christian school. I love to tell them to turn to Hezekiah 2.1. And seeing them, some of them flipping there, just trying to get there. And there is no Hezekiah, if you didn't know that. We look at Habakkuk chapter 3, and look at verse number 2. It says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. Look at this. In wrath, remember mercy. Literally, what is happening in the book of Revelation at this point, God unleashing his wrath pauses it all and remembers mercy. And as we look here and we see these things, that should be a great encouragement. That even, isn't, I just, I'm blown away by it. I mentioned it in our prayer meeting that we had at 515. Just the fact that God is so merciful and gracious. Just to us. Think of how merciful he's been to you tonight. And mercy is not getting what we deserve, right? 
And what do we deserve? We deserve hell. But Jesus took our place and God gave us mercy. But God who's rich in mercy, wherewith he loved us, all that Jesus did, that mercy, he took our place. And then grace is getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve the Spirit of God living inside of us. And yet because of God's grace, God's Spirit lives inside of us. We didn't deserve to hear the gospel and for it to change our lives and to be convicted by it. And yet God has been very gracious and very merciful to us, which should be a good lesson for us with everyone that we deal with to be merciful and gracious to the people we encounter because God's been so merciful and gracious to us, right? But to think that God's literally given everyone, he's given so many chances to people. The tribulation's happening. Literally, God's judgment is being unleashed. People are dying. People are crying out to the rocks to kill them. And in the midst of it, God says, okay, angels, just calm it all down. The wind blowing, the sign of the wind stopping is just showing everything being calm. When the wind's blowing, trees are waving in the wind, lots of things happen, but when there's just a calmness that comes. And when we look at this, we see letter B, we see what's involved in making this peace. What happens here? And we're told that there are four angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding back the wind. And when we look at this, there's several things that pop into my mind. First of all, who are these angels? Four angels, and then there's a fifth angel mentioned, right? In verse 2, it's clear. Look at verse 2 of our text. I'm in Habakkuk there, and I'm like, that doesn't look anything like Revelation. That's because I was in the... Now I'm back in Revelation. But look at verse number 2, and it says, I saw another angel descending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. That word hurt carries the idea of injuring without mercy. A relentless attack. Those four angels represent, and what they were, they were allowing God's wrath to pour down on earth. And literally, there's another angel that comes and tells them, hold it back. So who are these angels? They're the ones that are allowing earth to be, what are angels to begin with? Ministers of God, right? So they are ministering for God. And God is unleashing his wrath on the earth. Number two, as we look here, what are they doing? They're literally holding back on the earth. Now you say, is this really wind that they're holding back? Yeah, there's wind that they're holding back. Now is that figuratively? Is it a symbolism? I believe it's a symbolism. Because as we look at this, that's what leads to number three, what's meant by the wind. I think it's clear that as we look the Bible tells us in the book of Hosea, chapter 8, verse 7, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. And it, it hath no stalks, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. And so when we look at that verse right there, what the wind represents here, it's representing judgment. Literally, God's judgment is stopping for a time. 
on earth during this time. And as we look at this and uh, we see this lull in the storm, it kind of, you think about a hurricane. I, I was thinking about a hurricane, you know, how you got the eye. And literally, you have all the rain and all the wind, all those things come, and you get to the eye, the sun could be shining through, and it's almost like a lull before the next part of the storm's going to hit. And literally, this is a little pause that happens here. And so as we look at this, we also see, number four, what is meant by the four corners of the earth. The earth's flat, right? That's what that means. Those flat earthers, right? Because there's four corners. Isn't that what you see right there? Four corners? That's not what's meant by that. The Bible is clear. Isaiah 40, verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. So all of you flat earthers out there, and if you're a flat earther sitting in this room, it's he that sitteth on the circle of the earth. That's what the Bible says. Um, So the earth is a circle. It's round. It's not flat. Say, well, you just read the four corners mentioned right there. I did, didn't I? And so the Jews, they believed in the winds coming from the north, south, east, west. That's where the four comes from. The number four, throughout the Bible, there are different numbers. And some people will take the numbers and put them into verses, to the verses, right? Well, John 6, 66, that verse is about men turning away from Jesus. You need to understand something. Men put the numbers on the verses. And I'm glad they did. Because if we were to try to find Isaiah 40, 22, and just say, there's a verse in Isaiah that says, is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth? Let's find that verse. We would spend all of our time, that's a long ways in, to find that verse. I am grateful that they did it. But men added the chapters and verse numbers. I am not one of those that think that there's some spooky thing about the numbers between the verses and where they're at. In fact, I think whoever designed this in some places did a terrible job on separating chapters at certain places. But I'm glad I would never do it. So I'm glad they did it and that I didn't do it. But the number four, you think about the number seven. Well, who was it just the other day? I was with my boys. Who, which one of you was talking about the number seven? It was David and Matthew were with me. Was that on Monday? And so, what were you two talking about with the number seven? Do you remember? Oh, Matthew, so they were arguing about the better age. And Matthew said, I'm going to be turning seven this next year. That's God's number. It's the best. It's not better than being seven. And what was your response to that? Ten is double digits. It's better. And so they were arguing back and forth about, but I loved that my six-year-old, his argument, seven's God's number. And then Dave was like, how do you really know that it's God's number? And then they're just arguing back and forth. It's pretty funny, the conversation that the pastor's sons have about at at six and nine years old about turning seven and ten. But numbers are, the number seven stands for completion. The number number six in the Bible stands for the number of man. The number four stands for the earth and things on the earth, north, south, east, and west. And there's lots of other things there. And so we look, when we see number one tonight, the fact that there's a moment of peace that comes. When we look at this, we see number two tonight. Number two, Roman numeral number two, a fifth angel appears on earth. Now, you could look at several of my commentaries. It's amazing. Some people think that this is Jesus. 
and he's the one sealing the foreheads of those. But literally the word here, angel, literally means an angel. So I don't want to jump out of here and say that it's Jesus when it literally looks like it's an angel. I think it's just another angel. When you look at guys like Melchizedek that have no beginning of days, no ending of days like we do on Sunday morning, I think it's pretty clear if someone doesn't have a beginning of days or an ending of days and he's king and priest at the same time, that's probably Jesus. I think that's a great assumption and a great truth there. But I don't see, and literally most of my commentaries, that's what they say. And I don't know where they get that from. Because I get because he seals their foreheads. And it's interesting to note, we think about the fact that their foreheads are sealed. And then later on, the Antichrist is going to have a number sealed on those here on earth. It's amazing how when God does something, the devil has this counterfeit for everything. Everything that God does. You know, I was in, yesterday at the PD, we had our Bible study. And the, we were the first piece of the armor of God. We looked at the truth, the belt of truth. And the belt of truth, why it's so important is because Satan will do his best to feed us lies. And I gave them two examples. I went to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, and Satan lied to Eve, and Eve fell for the lie. And then I took them to Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus' temptation. And when we are girt with the truth, Jesus was able... Did Satan, Satan even quoted scripture. Satan's not dumb. He's pretty smart. He even quoted scripture, but if we don't have the truth, we can fall for that stuff. And that's where you look at, the, you look at all of this in the book of Revelation. God is good. God is everything that we want. Satan is a counterfeit. And he will never measure up to God. He never will get close to God. But there will be many that will put his number on them. And it's amazing how that all works. When we look at verse 2 again, it says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east. And you see it says another angel. That does not give any inclination that it is Christ. And it says, Having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. And so there's a moment of peace, but then we see a fifth angel appears. And then we mentioned, I'm jumping ahead of myself, so just write down these notes here, letter A. You know, the identity of this angel, I do not believe it's Christ. There are many that do believe it's Christ. As I said, it says another angel. And then we see letter B. We see what is this, what's the purpose of this angel? He literally is come to seal the servants of God in their forehead. And I mentioned to you the purpose of a seal. In those days, you could take a letter, and I mentioned how David, he, he gave a letter to Uriah, right? And had him take it to Joab on the front lines of the battle. And Uriah didn't open up the letter, because if he opened it up, the seal would be broken. That seal meant the letter was intact, and no one had touched that letter. And so I mentioned when I worked on a dock in Bible college and things, or even when I first started pastoring, every truck, when it was done, I would load the truck up, I would write every piece of freight that was on that truck, and I would take a seal, and I would snap it on that truck, and I would write on the manifest that seal number. So when that truck got to Phoenix or it got to Texas, wherever it was going, whoever got to that truck, they would see the seal on there, and they would see if the manifest and the seal matched up, meaning no one messed with that load. And so when we look at this fact, 
and we see these things, you've got to realize, yes, God is sealing them in their foreheads, and God seals us, right? And we're going to actually talk a little bit more about that here in a second. But when you look at Revelation 13, later on what's going to happen, it says, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he had had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Talking about what is coming, the mark of the beast. And remember, people are like, well, what is the mark of the beast? Is it going to be a chip in our hands? Is it a barcode? Because every barcode starts with the number six, has a six in the middle and has a six on the end. Is it going to be a barcode? I don't know what it's going to be. Who knows? I've had people tell me you need to warn Christians not to get this. Now, here's another thing. If you're a child of God, can you, um, can you not be saved any longer? Or will you always be saved? You'll always be saved because you're sealed until the day of redemption, right? So, it, and if you get the mark of the beast, are you, uh, are you going to heaven if you have the mark of the beast? No. So a saved person will not have the mark of the beast. And I think the Spirit of God is great enough to let you know that and to help us understand those things. And I don't think we'll be here when that takes place. Anyways, most of us. There will be some here, but that's, we'll look at that when we get to chapter number 13. You'll notice as we go through the book of Revelation, it's not in chronological order. You're going to see going forward there are events that go back and forth and all over the place. So we will try to tie it all together. But if you look at the book, trying to go chronologically through the book, I wouldn't do that because it's not going to get you very far and you're going to wonder what's happening. We see the intentions of this angel is to seal the servants of God in their foreheads and to seal them. And you think about what God did. God, there are several seals that God used throughout the scripture. God sealed um, Noah and his family in the ark. There was a seal of, remember, for Rahab, that scarlet, whatever, the scarlet something was there. I don't know why my mind's blanking there. But over and over again, God used, God has sealed, God sealed us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the Bible tells us, in whom ye also trusted that after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Just a couple weeks ago, I finally got a car again. And I'm grateful to have a car and not be driving the church van all over the place and getting seven miles per gallon. 30, I, I just, my, I got a Toyota Corolla. I just got the, I just went to the gas station and I checked the miles and I got 36 miles per gallon this last thing. And that, I praise God for that. In these days of gas prices, I'm grateful for that. The church van, nine. And on a bad day, seven. That's just where it goes. And, uh, but when I went to go get the car, you know what the first question they asked me? Do you have a down payment? I'm like, well, what if I don't give you a down payment? Like, if you don't give us a down payment, your interest rate's going to be higher. Interest rates are high enough right now. Have any of you realized that? Interest rates are crazy right now. My Pathfinder that got totaled was a 1.9% interest. And I told them that, and they just, ha, 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 ha. They just laughed at me. And I'm like, I'm not laughing. There's nothing funny about that. 
Why do you give a down payment? It's kind of like it's telling them you're good to make your loan. It's like the earnest. What God does with us, we have a lot coming in the future. We have heaven to look forward to. We have so many blessings from God. But right now we live here on earth. And God says when we get saved, what God literally says is, I'm going to give you a little taste of what's coming. And you get my spirit. And he will seal you until the day that you're with me. And he's your down payment. You got a lot more coming. He's just the beginning. And what a blessing that is to think about that we're sealed by the Spirit. When you think about that, I just put a few little thoughts here. And when we look, number one, talking about being sealed, we think about a possession. God places his seal on our life, and he marks you and I as his possession. We belong to him. He's not going to put a seal on someone else's possession, right? That's the way it works. Not only are we his possession, but number two, it's protection. Since we're his, he protects us. And that seal, nothing can break that seal. That's why Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then also, that seal, it preserves us. And Ephesians 4.30 talks about that fact. And the fact that it will never leave. We're sealed unto the day of redemption. So we see a pause in the action. Not only do we see a pause in the action, but we see another angel that hasn't been mentioned yet. Sealing people in their foreheads. And the last thing that we see, and lastly tonight, is the 144,000. As we look at the 144,000, we look at verse number 4. It says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Asher was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephilim were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simon were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. Benjamin, 12,000. And you take 12 times 12. Kids, what's that number? What's 12 times 12? And you add thousands to that, 144,000. That's where that number comes from. Some of you, some of you kids in the room, you better get that math starting to work. It's coming. It's coming. With a thousand, there are what? There are three zeros. And so you, 12 times 12 is 144. Add your three zeros, 144,000. Great way to get that number. And that's not doing common, common core math. If you were to do the common core, it would take like five days to come up with that answer and mess you all up getting there. Or the easiest thing to do is take a calculator, 12,000 times 12, and you get a good number there. Now we see this group here. And we see that they were sealed. And we see the number of them. And there are a lot of people that have a lot of ideas about this. Johnny and I. Uh, Johnny, Johnny is uh, doing work around here and on staff here doing things. And he is, he's really studious. He's a lot more studious than me. He really is a book nerd. 
you were to go to his house, he's got an office at home now. And so he's, and like me, when I started pastoring, <laughs> I had hundreds of books behind me. I had them there. You say, did you read all those books? Honestly, probably a quarter of them. Not all of them. You say, why do you have all the books behind you? You look smart with books behind you, don't you? You look a lot smarter that way. In a 25-year-old pastoring, books behind you, you look a little smarter with that. He has a lot of books everywhere, and I wouldn't be shocked if he's read almost all those books that he has. Or if he hasn't, he will read them before long. And we were talking last night about some thoughts about dispensationalism and covenant theology. We were talking about some things, and Manny was with us from the rest, go after going to the rescue mission. And Manny's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I don't even know some of the stuff Johnny's talking about right here. Johnny was going above my head a little. But some people have a, have a hard time with this when it comes to Israel and the end. Is God really going to use Israel again? Has the church replaced or become part of Israel being grabbed? Where does that whole line come in? I'm not going to take tonight and give you all my thoughts on these things, but my personal opinion is the Bible is very clear in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter number 9 is where you see Daniel 70 weeks. And I believe if you're going to study biblical prophecy you need to break down Daniel chapter number 9 in those 70 weeks. 69 weeks have been completed. There's one seven-year period left that God will work with the Jews. I'm a firm believer. So when it says there are 12,000 out of these 12 tribes mentioned, I believe sincerely these are Jews that God, are, God is using here. I do believe it. I take it that way. And if later on I find out once I get to heaven I was wrong, I would rather just take it. And there are things, you've got to understand, in the Bible, there are things you can take literally, and then there's some figurative things. And it is hard, honestly, it is hard to know what is figurative and what is literal. That is a hard thing. But I tend on most things to go literal when I can and this is one of those, that's where I stand. I believe that this literally is 144,000 Jews that get saved. And as we look at this and we think about this, it says, literally, they come from the tribes of Israel. These are the tribes of Israel that are mentioned here. And I know there are many churches and groups. I mentioned the Jehovah Witnesses earlier. Any Jehovah Witness I've ever talked to about the 144,000, I ask them what tribe they're from. And I never get an answer. Literally, I asked the guy that picked me up at the house. I said, go ask your, and I think it's an elder is what they have at their thing. I said, go ask your elder what tribe he's a part of if he's part of this 144,000. Because that kind of shuts it down when you look at the Jews here and you see these things. So, when we look at this, we see letter A, the fact that they're Jews. It's very simple. It's, it's, that's what it says. And then when we think about that, let's think about a few points underneath this. They're Jews, but number one, why are there exactly 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes that are written? You'll notice that when God works with Israel, the number 12 is used. There were 12 tribes now, if you were to add up all the tribes, were there technically more than 12 tribes? Yes. But God always 
the 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles. The number 12, it's a number that God uses. He used it for Israel. And when we look at it, you know, there were 12 stones on the breastplate for the high priest. 12 is a number that God used for them. God used it for Israel, and I believe that's why he used it here. And you can read the reason why I believe God's not done using Israel and why Israel will be a part not only in Daniel chapter number 9, but Romans 9 through Romans 11. Those three chapters right there as well. Let me, what I read from there, God is not done with Israel. And sometime the fulfillment or the fulfilling of the Gentiles will be done, and God's going to work through Israel once again. And then we look, and another question that pops up I mentioned earlier is, why, why aren't some tribes mentioned? And in all reality, I don't know. So, well, you don't know? I really don't know. Now, when we look, we mention what are the two tribes? Ephraim and Dan are the two that are mentioned, right? And um, Ephraim is Joseph's son, right? And he was given, he and Manasseh were both given a portion. Joseph was never given a portion. Yet we see Joseph's name mentioned here. And why is this? I don't know. Um, you will note that, do you remember Ephraim and Dan really went off in idolatry during the kingdom years? Does that have anything to do with why they're not mentioned? Probably. Because Ephraim, God was really upset with Ephraim. God was very upset with Dan. And then we see those are the two tribes not mentioned. But then we see the tribe of Joseph is mentioned. And isn't Ephraim in Joseph, technically? It's his son. So where does all that tie and give a good answer? I don't know. Say, didn't you study and figure something out? There are so many different thoughts on it. And if you want, I can give you, if you want to borrow a few of my books, you can read those books. And you can see if that helps you out. But I tend to think that Ephraim and Dan aren't mentioned because of all the idolatry that they went down. But I also think that Ephraim could be part of Joseph. And that could be there. So why? I don't really know. And then what we see is, the next question here is, how will these hundred, how are they going to get saved? Lots of speculation. One of the things is, remember, later on we'll look at it, that there are two witnesses that preach the gospel. And if you watch the Left Behind movies, the TV was on just long enough for the two witnesses to get the gospel out, and then Nikolai Carpathia had the TV cut off, but they got the gospel out real quick. I don't know how that all plays out there. It could be that they get saved from these two witnesses that preach. Say, who are the two witnesses? Let's wait till chapter 11, and I'll give you my thoughts about the two witnesses, okay? And I do have my thoughts. The one hint I'll give you is this. It's a point that the men wants to die, and after this, the judgment. There are two men that did not die that need to die, and that's my thoughts. And if you know who those two are, come back when we get to chapter 11, and I'll explain that to you then. That's just my thoughts. And then as we look at this, and um, number four, the fact is, as we think about these people, what makes them so special? What, what's important about them? And it's interesting to note, the other thing about the 144,000, so if anyone ever did this with me, if they said they were a part 
the 144,000, and I asked them which tribe of Israel were they a part of. No one's ever answered me after that. But if anyone ever could answer what tribe of Judah they, or tribe of Israel they were a part of, the second question is, are you a virgin? Because these are, Revelation 14 talks about, look at these verses, 1 through 5, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him an 144,000, having his father's name written. Do you see how Revelation bounces all over the place? So chapter 14, again, is going to be talking about these guys we're seeing in chapter 7. It's where you, it's all, you'll see as we go through. But it says, having their father's name written in their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harps harping with their harps, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. You see, they're going to have their own song. They're going to be redeemed, and it says, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. Say, well, is that figuratively or literal? I think it's got to be literal. It says it, right? So really, that, so if anyone ever tells me they are the 144,000, they tell me what tribe of Israel they're a part of, that's my next question. Are you a virgin? Because that's literally what it says, right? About these 144,000? It says, They were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. These men are pure before the Lord. They have not been, they're completely dedicated to the Lord. And you know, Paul talks about what happens when you get married. And Paul says he wished people were like him and just stayed single, right? Isn't that what he said there? It's interesting to note, and this is just a side note. You can think about this sometime. Paul was a Pharisee, wasn't he? Do you know Pharisees had to be married? Just a little thought. You can think on that one, and I got some thoughts behind that too, but Pharisees had to be married. Anyways, so Paul says when you marry someone, they're going to take a lot of your time, right? You're not, you could be way more dedicated to God being single than you can being married to somebody. Because I cannot just focus on everything of God. I got to focus on my wife. And I'm, gla- I'm glad that God want, it was okay for pastors to be married. I had someone the other day, we were talking about, oh, you're a, you're a, you're a pastor? You're a priest? I'm like, <laughs> not a priest, I'm a pastor. They're like, you're wearing a wedding ring. I'm like, yep, thank God. Yeah, they're like, I thought you couldn't be married. No, the, the bishop's supposed to be the husband of one wife, right? That's what the Bible says. Thank God it says that. I'm glad it's that way. And, uh, but when you're married, that takes some of your time. A lot of your time. All your time, not quite. But you know what I mean when I say that. Where these men will literally, they will have no family. No one to hold them. They will literally preach the gospel everywhere. And then as we look at this, what are they going to do? Letter B, they are going to take the gospel to the world. And it is a fulfillment of Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached 
in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, there are many out there that take this verse and say that before the rapture can take place, the gospel has to get everywhere first. But Matthew 24, let's, a lot of people get wrong in their theology about the end times because they take Matthew 24 as in reference for the church. Matthew was written to the Jews. The very next verse in verse 15 talks about the fact, the abomination of desolation in the midst of the tribulation. So, in all reality, the gospel reaching everywhere happens during the tribulation time, not before the tribulation starts. And that's just looking at the Bible and what it says. And literally these 144,000 Jews are going to take the gospel everywhere. You think about this. Literally, we have had the gospel for 2,000 years, the church has. Maybe a little bit longer than 2,000 years. But do you know how many people groups still don't have a Bible in their language and know nothing about God and his word? And we've had a long time to try and get figured out. And even today, okay, back in Paul's day, I get it. How did you expect Paul to get everywhere with the gospel? We have the internet today. We have television. We have a lot of things that they didn't have. You know, basically, I remember a message when I was in college. The, um, the pastor there, he used the example of how Coke is everywhere in the world. Coca-Cola. And he had gone to these small little villages in the middle of nowhere, and they literally had Coca-Cola. And if Coca-Cola could be in a little village that's in the middle of nowhere, why couldn't the gospel get to that little village in the middle of nowhere? That really stuck out in my mind. With all the advances in technology we have today, there are still hundreds of people groups that still do not have the gospel. And yet, during the tribulation time, there are going to be 144,000. I think there are more Christians today in this world than 144,000. I think. I hope. I think there are more than 144,000 Christians today. But in a short amount of time, this 144,000 Christians will literally get the gospel around the world in a short amount of time. And we've been trying to do that for 2,000 plus years and not getting it done. Have you ever just thought why we haven't? I think we get too preoccupied with everything else and forget the most important thing that Jesus wanted us to do was to tell people about him. I think we missed that. And literally, that's all that they're going to do. And if 144,000 could reach the world with the gospel, why can't everyone today do it? It's 144,000. is going to be an amazing thing to see what they do. And uh, so, who are the 144,000? They're Jews. They're virgins. They reach the world with the gospel. And during the tribulation, the midst of God's wrath being unleashed, God pauses it all and says, there's still people that need to hear about me. 
and people get saved and people still get saved even in the midst of God's judgment because God in the midst of his wrath he still remembers mercy and thank God for a God who remembers mercy even in the midst of his wrath what a God we serve don't ever forget that and I would encourage you don't wait for the 144,000 to get the gospel around the world. Why don't you grab a track and tell someone the rest of this week about Jesus? It's the best thing you could do. I think there's nothing better than telling someone about Jesus. Father.